Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app. And it's always very exciting when, even during recess, we get some breaking news. Get the latest transfer news first. Unbelievable. Matt Chorley's Westminster Transfer Deadline Day on Times Radio. Get in. Take a look at Grant Shapp's life and times in politics. He founded his own printing company at the age of 21. He, sh- he then went on to win the seat of Well in Hatfield in 2005. He was a rising star under David Cameron. I sat through many of these shadow uh, housing brief uh, briefings he used to do for the regional lobby. His figures didn't always add up, but they were fun. Uh, he then became a housing minister in the coalition and then made it into the cabinet as party chairman. Uh, he then had to resign from that post. Cameron stood by him when he emerged. He'd previously been a multi-million dollar web marketeer under the pseudonym Michael Green. I don't have a second job and have never had a second job whilst being an MP. End of story. Although he did have a pseudonym. Uh, he was also International Trade Minister, but resigned... Oh, that was when he resigned after revelations he'd been warned about bullying in the party that led to the death of a young activist. He was back with a bang in 2019 when he was made Transport Secretary, allowing him to make this promise... Trains on time, clean. <laughs> a staunch defender of the government, he came out to bat over and over again for Boris Johnson. I think we can be pretty clear the Prime Minister didn't present a cake to himself. One of my favourites, though, when Matt Hancock was caught in an embarrassing embrace with his aide during lockdown. As I understand that photograph, it uh, looks like it was after the um, uh, unlock stage, as it were. I heard it called that before. After Boris Johnson, uh, he briefly had a go at running for Tory leader with this promise. I can help you win your seat. Then he backed uh, Rishi Sunak, falling out of favour with his trusts, did his bit to get her out of office, tracking rebels on a spreadsheet so big that he needed a special phone. Grant Shapps, who was very concerned about Liz Truss's regime, was going around with his Samsung phone, which folded out. It folded out so you could see the spreadsheet. When uh, Liz Truss was then forced to bring him back into the cabinet as Home Secretary, after Swella Bravman had resigned, then she resigned... The following day, Rishi Sunak, they're made in business secretary, allowing him to, to travel the world and say things like this. Surprisingly, salmon sushi wasn't really a thing in Japan just 30 years ago. And uh, he's been legendary on going on the TV and radio ever since, but the government is in a tight spot. They stand for Grant Shapps, as Sky's Sophie Ridge observed. On weeks in Westminster, where it seems everything has been set on fire, you were the one sitting in the seat on Sunday. Are you number 10's human fire blanket? I'm sure it's entirely coincidental. Well, uh, there we are. So in the last uh, 12 months, he has had five jobs. Uh, so he was Transport Secretary beginning of, until the beginning of September last year. Then he was sacked by Liz Trust. Then he was brought in as Home Secretary for basically a day. Then he became Business Secretary then Energy Security and Net Zero Secretary, and now Defence Secretary. Get your fix of the transfer mix. Oh, what a finish! With instant reaction from the biggest names in the game. Matt Chorley's Westminster Transfer Deadline Day on Times Radio. Yeah, very exciting. Reshuffle underway. Coming up in our big thing today, we are actually looking at how the way that we report political news has changed over the years. Looking back over the political editors series that we've been doing over the last week or so, from hot metal and typewriters and phoning in copy to basically breaking news about reshuffles on social media. So that's coming up in just a moment. 
But first, let's take a look at the, all that news breaking and otherwise with today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's another independent on Sunday reunion. My old colleagues from Britain's at one time least read national newspaper. Uh, Jane Merrick is here from the eye. Hello, Jane. Hello. Uh, Matthew Bell. Is Hello, well. Hello, Matthew Bell. Morning, uh, morning. Um, Jane, let's start with the reshuffle. Uh, Grant Shapps replaces Ben Wallace. Claire Coutinho replaces Grant Shapps as Energy Secretary. Uh, the first uh, MP uh, elected in 2019 to make the Cabinet. And then David Johnston comes in as Junior Education Minister, replacing her, another MP elected in 2019. And that, we think, is the end of it. What do we make of it? What can we learn from Rishi Sunak's thinking, do you think, Jane? Yeah, it's been rumoured for the last couple of weeks, actually, that that far from having a wide-ranging reshuffle that Rishi Sunak was planning, it was going to be a much tighter one. Obviously, Ben Wallace was standing down, so he needed to replace someone. I think what it shows is that he's playing it really safe at the moment, and that's probably a sign that his authority isn't what it could be. He can't afford to sort of sack lots of people, get new people in, but he is playing it very safe. He's got a key ally in Grant Shapps, who's been very loyal to him as Defence Secretary, and then one of his closest allies, Claire Coutinho, as Energy Secretary. Um, ben Wallace, I mean, they were never very close anyway. Ben Wallace was a, a leftover from Boris Johnson's cabinet, a big ally of Boris Johnson. But it would have been too dangerous to sack him when he when he became Prime Minister in October. So I think he's playing it really safe. I don't know when a wider reshuffle will come. Is this really going to be the, the kind of the top team that the Prime Minister will take into the election? I'm not sure. Um, but it does show that he wants to sort of to keep things very safe in the run-up to Tory conference. Um, uh, Matthew, uh, what do you make of it? I mean, cause well, one of the, I mean, it is interesting that, that Claire Coutinho, as, as James was saying, is such a close ally. She was a special advisor to Rishi Sunak when he was, uh, I think, at the Treasury. And then she became, you know, got elected as an MP. She's making the cabinet. I suppose, actually, it's quite a good way of holding out hope for other Tory MPs that there is still a chance you could get a job this side of an election. Well, it slightly makes me want to go to the lettuce aisle in the supermarket and start buying a lettuce for each of the um, cabinet positions. But if you remember when Liz Truss um, came into office, the, the, was it the Sun or the, the Star that bought a lettuce? Yeah. And saw who could, who could out... <laughs> I mean, it, it, what I'm saying is, you know, Grant Shapps um, was Home Secretary for six days. He's been in the last job... Um, I think in a number of months. Um, I think what, what what this shows is a sort of, as Jane was saying, the, the freebile nature at, Down, at Downing Street is sort of, um, it's the last days of Rome. It's trying to to, to keep the show going um, in, in a safer way as possible, and and it's not making ambitious uh, calls. It's it's trying to keep um, keep the Tory Party looking like they're in control and like they're a safe pair of hands. But I think, as Jane says, it it, it reveals a certain nervousness at the top. And uh, and also, Jim, the fact I don't know why he's not done a br- the, the 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 long trailed bigger reshuffle, given that everyone's expecting it at some point, and um, doing it now would mean that they would be in place at the party conference, which is in like two or three weeks' time, and then heading into the King's speech. Instead, it just means that throughout the party conference, it's all going to be treated as a sort of beauty parade of people trying to 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 um, get promotion. It's also slightly earlier than we were expecting. I mean, it's August. I mean, it is the last day of August, but it is literally still August and you don't normally have reshuffles. I I wonder whether Ben Wallace slightly forced his hand and said, look, I want to go 
by the end of, of August. I mean, I think it's also true to say that, you know, if Grant Chaps isn't the most qualified person for the job. That person would be Penny Mordant. If you wanted someone to come in um, to, you know, there's a, obviously the war still going on, going on in Ukraine. You need someone who has had experience in that job. That would be Penny Mordant. But he doesn't have, a, he's not in a strong enough position to, to be able to put those people in place. He wants his allies around him. And um, clearly he's, you know, Penny Mordant isn't a big um, ally of his. But I think you're right. I mean, the King's speech, it's going to be the, the, the monarch's first King's speech as, as monarch. It's going to be a major moment. There's going to be, we're only, what, possibly 12 months, even maybe nine months away from an election. He may have another reshuffle, maybe in December, but it doesn't speak to me of someone who is in complete control of his cabinet or party. Well, we'll see, uh, see how that um, that pans out. Uh, Keir Starmer, as well, rumoured to be uh, looking at a, a reshuffle too. Whether or not he does that before the Labour conference in uh, in Liverpool will be interesting as well. Uh, let's move on because I want to talk about food, which is basically what I want to talk about all the time. Uh, there's been a row over the discharge into the sea uh, in Japan of uh, treated radioactive wastewater from the 2011 Fukushima nuclear meltdown. Now the Japanese government has released a video of the Prime Minister eating a very delicious fish sashimi from Fukushima. Obviously, politicians trying to show that food is safe uh, is a good excuse. Uh, to remember, John Gummer attempted to feed his daughter a beef burger to prove British beef was safe. Uh, she slightly tried to refuse it, but that was because it was too hot. Let's take a listen. That's too hot! When you've got the clear support of the scientists who deal with these matters, the clear support of the Department of Health, the clear action of the government, there is no need for people to be worried, and I can say perfectly honestly that I shall go on eating beef as my children will go on eating beef because there is no need to be worried. Oh, <laughs> happy days, Matthew. Um, would seeing a politician eating something encourage you to eat it, Matthew? Absolutely not. I mean, it's the most um, invidious position that a politician can find himself in is he, you know, in, in John Gunner's case, of course, he had to say that uh, because if he didn't, all hell would have broken loose. And as we subsequently know, there was a connection between BSC and CJD. But in, the, in at that moment, he had to stake his life's daughter on eating the burger. And it's a similar position that we find in Japan now of, of eating the radioactive sushi. Um, you've got this uh, impossible decision as a politician. If you don't uh, go on national television to eat it, then then that's the story. Um, and so, but it does slightly remind me of uh, when David Cameron was um, in office. He said, you know, never get yourself caught uh, photographed holding a glass of champagne because that's the photograph that will survive forever. That's the one they'll always use. And I think it's the same with John Gummer. Whenever we think of John Gummer, we think of him with the daughter and the burger. Uh, that sort of that'll be his um, his crowning his obituary title. Um, and I think so. So it's it's an impossible situation for these politicians. You have to slightly feel sorry for them uh, because they're they're being obliged to uh, toe the toe the line um, when in fact the truth is probably quite different. Um, Jane, there's something weird about how, given that everyone eats food, politicians going near food never ends well. There's Ed Miliband at the bacon sandwich, David Cameron eating a hot dog with a knife and fork, um, mm. uh, Theresa May eating chips in a slightly peculiar fashion. Um, they can barely eat in a normal way, normally, never mind using it to sort of communicate a public health message. Yeah, it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, I think um, that that picture of um, John Gummer with his daughter Cordelia is iconic because actually it was 1990. It was before kind of Tory sleaze, but it was getting there. And I think it underlined how, 
you know, the, the sense was that conservatives don't really understand normal people's feelings. You know, it's quite a heartless thing. I think it's worth saying, actually, that John Gummer now is a sort of a, a great champion of the environment um, and against sort of what Rishi Sunak is saying on rivers, for example. So he's, I think he has, I disagree with Matthew, actually. I think his obituary top line will be his passion for the environment and sort of standing up to the environment and the Conservative Party, especially when everything is, you know, being washed away. Um, but it's absolutely right. I mean, you're, you know, the bacon sandwich, Ed Miliband, I remember speaking to the guy um, at Covent Garden Flower Market. He said that he gave him the bacon sandwich because he felt sorry for him. It was so early in the morning <laughs> that he looked like he needed a, a good um, good bit of food. And clearly at that point, his advisor should have stepped in and said, no, you know, we've got a photographer here. You can eat in a bit. Um, so, yeah, it's never a good idea to mix, you know, politicians, animals, children, food, <laughs> any of those things <laughs> any of those things um uh well in a sec we're gonna um here's an exciting question do you know someone who looks like keir starmer matthew i don't think this applies to you uh but uh alison jackson is looking for a keir starmer uh lookalike one of the things we just talked about the independent on sunday uh somebody's just been in touch tim says because Jane, Matthew and I all used to work at the Independent Sunday. Tim says, Hi Matt, back in the day when I was working as a croupier in the Belgian seaside resort of Blankenberg, the Independent Sunday was the only Sunday paper that arrived on the day of print. So I really got to enjoy it and was sad when it stopped. Good football coverage as well. It was a long time before I had the internet, so it was my main news source. So there we are. We found the reader. The paper for croupiers. <laughs> the papers of, of Belgian croupiers. Right, here's a good question. Do you look like Keir Starmer? If you do, Alison Jackson wants to hear from you. Alison, of course, is the BAFTA award-winning uh, contemporary... In fact, Alison, what do you call yourself? Is it artist, filmmaker, <laughs> photographer, uh... prankster, satirist? Well, I'm an artist, a uh, photographer, and a filmmaker, actually. No, so, uh, all together. any of those, <laughs> satirist, uh, whatever. So, um, and and people would have seen your work before, where you 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 mock up scenes involving what appears to be very famous people doing things you wouldn't necessarily expect them to do, but using lookalikes. That's right. So I use lookalikes, people who look like people, actors, people off the street. I'm always running up to people on the street saying, hey, you look like Donald Trump or Rishi Sunak or whoever it is. And then I place them into a scene that we've all imagined but never seen before and make it look totally realistic. So uh, it looks real, but it isn't. It's with actors. And I'm desperately trying to find a Keir Starmer lookalike. I can't find one anywhere uh, that will do it. Uh, or anywhere, and I would uh, love uh, anyone or your help in trying to find a, a Keir Starmer lookalike. Well, I tell you what, if anyone knows of a Keir Starmer lookalike, either maybe maybe you're listening and people say you look like Keir Starmer, or uh, you know someone, email me, matt at times.radio, and I'll pass it on to Alison, with a picture, please. We don't want to just like... We need some some sort of uh, quality. Yeah, maybe control. even maybe a little video. Yeah, you know what you know, doing a walk and talk like uh, Keir Starmer or just a face because I can always shoot from any kind of angle. I can, I've got a wig. You know, we can do a nice bouffant hair or anything. Well, we know, could, anyone could do it, Matthew. Matthew, you put a wig on and shoot you from behind. You'd look like Keir Starmer. <laughs> Do you, do you actually remember that Keir Starmer did have an impersonator back in the in the noughties? Um, and I remember when he was the director of uh, public prosecutions, he said someone was going around um, trying to get a mortgage and buying fast cars, impersonating 
Keir Starmer. So maybe, um, Alison, you could dig him up. He was called Paul Bint. Um, oh, yes. Well, I wonder, how, how good is he? <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure he looked when very he... like him. It was more, it was more of a, uh, he stole his identity, didn't he, rather than his face. <laughs> he looks like yeah, a young Keir Starmer. I'm not sure he's aged as well, but uh, yeah. The other <laughs> one is, is, on, is on Gogglebox. Do you know, what's he called? Lee? Oh, Lee yeah, and well, Jenny. yeah, yeah. I'll have a look. Yeah. Well, Keir Starmer's put on a little bit more. He's larger now isn't he than he was so that uh, i think we have to really find that uh, character face now uh, as he as he as he is now so but i'll definitely have a look at him uh, but yeah it's the facial likeness that i'm really interested in so i can make the photograph look really realistic jenny jane any ideas I was going to suggest that guy from Gogglebox. I and mean, I think the problem with Keir Starmer is he's so, there's nothing really distinctive about his face. So it must be, I, it must be really difficult to find someone actually, because there's nothing, there's no real kind of, you know, Tony Blair's quite, I imagine quite easy. Um, yeah, he's just, he, I mean, he used to look a bit like Colin Firth when he was younger. And obviously Colin Firth played Mark Darcy, who was allegedly based on Keir Starmer when um, Helen Fielding was, knew him in the 80s. But he's just completely changed, as you say now. And I, I, there's nothing really distinctive about him apart from his little Tintin hair. Well, he, what, he, yeah, and he has changed quite recently because the glossy sort of Blair-like prime ministerial glow has sort of changed now, hasn't it? He's become more, you know, of the people, more pub-going look. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's, you know, it, that's changed again. I mean, I did like your suggestion of Tony Hadley, actually, uh, because I think he he really does. Yes, somebody uh, messaged in. So William, yeah. William messaged in and said Tony Hadley from Spandau Ballet could double as Keir Starmer. And he's tr it's true. If you look at pictures of Tony Hadley now, they do look quite similar. Well, I just really hope Tony Hadley might do it. <laughs> I'm sure... You know, like, if, if I get a nice wig, you know, I know Keir Starman's hair's a little bit more ruffled now uh, and less bouffant, but I'm sure, you know, I think everyone recognises Keir Starmer in that kind of more formal bouffant style that uh, we can do that with Tony Hadley. But, I mean, it'd be lovely to hear from Yes, do anybody. get in touch about that time, somebody. Dare I ask what it is that you want to photograph Keir Starmer doing? Well, I think it's ongoing because it's going to be obviously uh, <laughs> lead up to the elections and is he tipped uh, to be the next PM? Um, but yes, I mean, I thought definitely because in our minds, he has changed from this sort of prime ministerial kind of glossy role into, you know, so I thought definitely down at the pub now, maybe with the trade unionists, maybe sitting on a fence wearing some flip flops. I don't know. We, You know, I've got a whole range of ideas, uh, but nothing too. Uh, dreadful at the moment uh, and uh, you know I just think it would be fun to explore any any ideas Well anyone who wants to get in touch uh, Matt at times.radio I look forward to seeing the uh, the pictures emerge from there. Uh, Jay, uh, uh, Alison, really good to speak to you. Alison Jackson, if we find anyone, uh, we'll uh, we'll come back to you. Um, Jane and Matthew, someone else has been in touch. I have a first edition of The Independent on Sunday, says Ian. Am I your saddest listener? <laughs> Matthew Bell and Jane Merrick from the Eye and you can read all the stories we're discussing online right now just go to thetimes.co.uk and read it with your subscription up next we take a look at how the reporting of politics has changed over the last half century
You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. In our series, The Political Editors, we looked at how the news and the newsmakers changed. Today, we reflect on the way they reported over the past half century and how you might get your news in the future. No mobile phones. What do we do? I used to send them by mail. And it was the first time in my life that I'd worked on a little computer. We didn't just turn up with a photographer, but we turned up with an artist as well. The web was still a massive inconvenience that you kind of serviced. The technological changes have made a massive impact. Judgment has to be instant. You can't reflect. He learned that he was going to be sacked reading that tweet and the Times Live blog in the car on the way to number 10. Yeah, one thing the series really showed us was the the pace of political change in the last 50 years. But that has been matched by huge technological change too. Typewriters giving way to desktop computers, then laptops, and now reporters filing straight from their phones. Hot metal typesetting, casting stories in molten lead, replaced by high-tech ink printers, and now stories published straight to websites and apps. So today we're going to look at how those changes affected the work of our political editors, and then we'll look at how the future of news looks. How will we be reporting on the, the, the coming 50 years of politics? So let's go right back to the beginning of our series with the political editors. Before reaching Westminster, in the 1970s, Fred Emery was a Times correspondent reporting on the Vietnam War. And getting his stories out of Vietnam was a complicated business. There was hardly any technology to speak of. For instance, it was very difficult to phone anything from Vietnam because the lines were extremely bad. Uh, The best connections were either through the cabling telex system, right? And also, if you were in really, really bad trouble, you could go through the American official system, which was a question of telephones and using telexes, official telexes, usually to get your messages to Washington rather than to London. And you could get into terrible trouble then. You'd send things to Washington, and the Washington correspondent, a gentleman called Louis Heron, uh, would say, no thanks, we got a man there anyway. Well... Uh, <laughs> it's very funny there, the Times book. So we've got someone there. It's me. Uh, when uh, he managed, when Fred managed to take some stunning photos of the impact of the bombing of the Van Dong River, it would take days, literally days, for him to get the negatives back to London. Well, the Times didn't want me to try to send photos electronically. Yes. Which you could do, if you were lucky, yeah. through the post office system to Hong Kong and then onwards to London. Yeah. No, no, I used to send them uh, by mail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get them developed or or not. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I'm not sure whether I ever got that one yeah. developed in Vietnam, but I certainly sent a reel in with it and a, a list of what the photos were and they very happily published it. Uh, but then he got to Washington himself. He got to be the man taking the calls in Washington, uh, covering, uh, for the Times, covering Watergate and the fall of uh, Richard Nixon. But the time difference meant really early deadlines and relying on contacts for the biggest scoop, finding out that Richard Nixon was about to resign. I had this guy's number, and 
everybody was desperate to know if Nixon was going to go that week, which day would it be, and so on. And he very quietly said, there are removals vans in Executive Drive, which is the road between the White House and the executive office building. It was terribly important for me to know that, not just as a scoop, but because the Times was going to publish a special edition on Nixon's departure, right? Which we'd all written articles for and everything. So he was desperate to know. We didn't want to go a day late, obviously. So I told them that. The print effort of that supplement was running before Nixon had actually resigned. Because you knew the removal sounds were there. It's incredible. It really was incredible. Those deadlines could cause problems. Fred Emery's replacement as political editor, Julian Havlin, who died a month after we carried out our interview. He joined the Times in 1981, having previously been political editor for ITN. And the move from the immediacy of just rushing on TV to the deadlines of print journalism presented its own problems. TV was easier because uh, you could always, deadlines weren't so pressing. I was shocked by how soon, if you were going to make the front page, you had to have your copy in on the Times. Whereas without you, with the main news tennis it always was, you could walk in uh, at the last moment and spout, and as I say, never be stopped. And so it was easier. And you, you thought the poor newspaper people are going to have to catch up because the events I'm describing they'd have had to write about at seven o'clock and here am I with an update at two minutes to ten. So tell you was much easier. Tell you it was easier because you could just rush on. You didn't have to file it earlier. Well, Phil Webster joined the Times in February 1973, prized for his 180-words-per-minute shorthand. But when he was out on the road as a reporter, speed was also of the essence. Who could sprint to a payphone first? We drove to Newbury Racecourse. A platform had been erected. She stood up there as if she was making a speech to several thousand racegoers. In fact, there were about 30 journalists. And she came out with a lot of rather aggrandizing stuff about how she was now the longest serving leader and she was she would have a big influence at the forthcoming GA. We rather mischievously saw this as Thatcher decides to conquer the world type story. We thought we got some good stuff. But we, of course, 83, no mobile phones. What did we do? So we persuaded our bus driver to call us off. This is by getting at about six, seven o'clock. Please, driver, can you stop? at Reading and we'll jump out of the bus and try and find some phones. And that's what happened. He pulled up. He's a rather gruff driver. And he said, you've got half an hour. And if you're not back here in half an hour, you'll have to find your own way home. And uh, we jumped out of the bus and just ran (laughs) and ran and ran. I was pretty fast. I got to the station. I knew there'd be um, phones there. I phoned my copy over, you know, Thatcher to take over the world and ran back. About four of us made it. And we then pleaded with the driver to wait for the rest, and he wouldn't. And he off he went, drove back to London, and most of the guys had to find their own way back uh, on the train, having filed their, filed their copy. Philip Webster discussing the, the perils of being out on the road with Margaret Thatcher. Well, after decades of huge numbers of staff sweating over hot metal presses, in the 1980s, things changed and changed Quickly, strikes by print unions were bringing Fleet Street to a standstill. The threat of computerisation, 
which was doing the jobs of multiple workers, led to thousands of printers to walk out. In 1986, Rupert Murdoch took his British titles to Wapping, a new site in East London, in a move that would end up liberating all of Fleet Street from the stranglehold of the print unions. Outside Fortress Wapping, there were mass demonstrations and clashes between print workers and the police. Inside, Philip Webster was getting to grips with the new technology. After a lot of toing and froing over the weekend, a lot of reporters wondered whether they should be going to Wapping or not. I had no doubt. I had to. I was on duty. <laughs> I braved the um, the pickets that Sunday morning, went in. And of course, this was the first time as a journalist I'd never worked on a typewriter. And it was the first time in my life that I'd worked on a little computer. And um, in the office at Wapping, we had about a, a dozen people, young American computer experts showing us how to use computers for the first time. And for me, that was by far the toughest part of the day, let alone the fact that we didn't have any telephones in the office that were working until about three in the afternoon. And somehow we had to get a a story out. And I remember standing in front of the television and it was uh, the Sunday lunchtime show. I think in those days it was Brian Walden and he'd got Douglas Hurd on there talking about the Westland dispute. And as I was standing there taking a laborious and full shorthand note, knowing that probably these were the only words I was going to get going to get all day, and knowing that I had to fill page one, page two, and a spread inside, uh, a person came up to me whom uh, I'd never met before and said, who's this guy? And I said, well, it's um, Douglas Hurd. Oh, he's very good, said this guy. And that guy was Rupert Murdoch. I was seeing huge technological change. But the Times kept on innovating, as Roland Watson recalls of the 2010 general election. There was a rather fabulous tradition of the editor interviewing every party leader, along with the political editor. And for these events, we didn't just turn up with a photographer, but we turned up with an artist as well so that the interview would be displayed across two pages of the uh, of the Times inside with this artist's sketch as the main image on the page. We got Cameron and Clegg under our belts uh, quite early on in the campaign. Gordon Brown was incredibly reluctant. He really did not want to do this interview. <laughs> he really didn't want to be drawn uh, by the artist either. But technology kept on changing. The early 2010s brought a new kind of politics with the coalition. And with the likes of YouTube launching in 2005, Twitter launching in 2006, with new ways of working too. Rolling news becoming a, a bigger demand of even print journalists. Not that Francis Elliott necessarily embraced it. The web was still a massive inconvenience that you kind of serviced resentfully, as infrequently as you could get away with, and probably quite badly. Um, Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Sorry about that. Well, these days, the Times newsroom is a digital-first operation, with reporters, news editors, sub-editors, picture editors, working throughout the day to update the website and app in real time. All a long way from just waiting for to file at the end of the day with a round-up just before the press is rolled. Well, this is invaluable when the news is coming thick and fast, as the current political editor, Steve Swinford, explained. 
this is politics happening at hyperspeed. It's not like we wait for newspapers anymore. We have live blogs, we have Twitter. So I thought, let's just get it out there. So we did the tweet and we put it at the top of the live blog on the Times of Live blog and everything just exploded because at this point in time, Kwasi Kwarteng was completely unaware that he was going to be sacked. And he learned that he was going to be sacked reading that tweet and the Times Live blog in the car on the way to number 10. And there was an amazing series of photos. There was one when he got into the car at the airport when he was smiling for the cameras, <laughs> going to seal his trust, going to fix the economy, going to make everything right. And when he got out at number 10, looking very grim-faced. When I say politics is happening at hyperspeed, that is one of the big changes. If you're looking at all of the political editors you've interviewed... We're in this era now where, and particularly that Liz Truss era, things were happening almost minute by minute. You were getting entire budgets reversed in a matter of hours. You were getting successive cabinet resignations, appointments. And it's just the sheer pace of it that is one of the biggest changes in covering politics. And having to cover politics at that pace comes with downsides too. During 40 years in what was once Fleet Street, Sir Peter Riddle saw big changes to report faster and faster. But that came at a cost. You worked late, which also had a great advantage. You got to know politicians much better yeah. because you really did rub shoulders with them in the evening. But that, as you say, has all changed. The technological changes have made a massive impact. Um, there's much, many of them are, are strong pluses. There's much more transparency. There's more openness. However, it does also make it more instant. Judgment has to be instant. You can't reflect. You can't go around and talk to two or three people. Which you know, I, I would be talking to several people wander around Parliament, wander around the lobby, be on the phone. But I didn't have to reach a judgment Mm. within five minutes. This is Times Radio. Very good morning to you, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Uh, Taking a look back over our series, speaking to political editors of the Times over the last half century, and the way that journalism, the way they report their stories has changed and putting things in the post to posting on live blogs. But what does the next half century look like? I'm joined now by Tatton Spiller, founder and director of Simple Politics and author of the new book, Politics But Better. Hi, Tatton. Good morning. And Dorothy Byrne, president of Murray Edwards College at University of Cambridge and a former head of news and current affairs at Channel 4. Hi, Dorothy. Good morning. Um, let's start with you first of all, uh, Tatton. Explain for people who don't know, and they might, plenty of people will, what Simple Politics is and the scale of the following that you've built up. Well, Simple Politics is, uh, well, it's, just, it's mostly a page on Instagram. It's a page across social media. We've got 1.1 million followers. And what we do is explain what's going on. Just keep you, the idea is that we're a, a friendly voice on your shoulder. We're not uh, trying to excite people about things particularly. We're certainly not trying to make an argument for one particular case or another. In fact, we try and put both arguments out there so that people can see that they might, why they might be wrong or why someone else might think what they think. So it's a platform for, 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 for people to keep, it, keep in touch with what's going on. Dorothy, this sort of thing, something, uh, a sort of political news service which exists almost solely as images posted on Instagram is a long way from the the, the good old days of uh, the newspapers going to press late at night and the TV news bulletins just updating people on the day's events. Well, I think all these new podcasts and different services are wonderful, but the fact is that uh, television news is still by far the most news used news source in the UK. 
70% of adults in the UK, according to the July 2023 survey by Ofcom, say it, that they use it, television news. And if you add on the on-demand services, it's 75%. So we need to remember that for quite a number of years to come, and I posit many years, television news will still be the most important source. For example, in the Johnson versus Corbyn television debate, 6.7 million people watched it. That was a third of the available audience. So TV is still really important. And the thing that worries me most is that politicians are no longer putting themselves up for big, difficult interviews in television in the way that Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair used to. It's an interesting point, though, isn't it, Tatton? Because you've got different... There's an awful lot of analysis and uh, um, uh, collation, you know, um, of of political news, endless podcasts and so on, as Dorothy would say. Sort of thing that you're doing is taking, taking uh, news which is in the ether and presenting it all in one place, you know, and explaining what it means. But you do need someone at the beginning of that process to be generating those stories, whether it's uh, delivering on scoops, asking tough questions of politicians to get their answers, which can then be disseminated. And if politicians are sort of cutting out the, the start of that conveyor belt, if you like, what, what you're picking up at the end of it suffers a bit. Oh, for sure. And I think if, the, if this section is about the future of... Uh, media and future of journalism i think it's a very varied future uh it's ab absolutely right we are ready for tv news to continue but we need i i sit i sit at home i've never been to a lobby briefing i've never been to the press gallery i just lucky. use the excellent journalism that that your paper comes up with and the bbc comes up with and everybody else and i collate that we absolutely need quality journalism not just so i can read it and pass it on but there needs to be that variety uh to keep the whole country going with its news and that obviously comes at a cost dorothy you know having lots of people working speaking to people producing the original journalism is costly and the industry has struggled uh, whether it's newspapers, you know, experimenting with paywalls, you know, which the Times has got and others have, have since followed. TV news, similarly, I mean, there's been a big debate about your old, uh, your old employer, Channel 4 News, and how that's going to be funded. We still have enough money in this country to fund the BBC and Channel 4 properly. It interests me that the government made the correct decision not to privatise Channel 4 very much because of the importance of Channel 4 News as giving a different public service television news programme to the BBC. And yet the politicians won't come on, the B on Channel 4 to be held properly accountable. I'll give you one example. Rishi Sunak has only been interviewed three times by Gary Gibbon. Channel 4 News is a very highly respected political editor. And on each occasion, that was when he was in Washington 
San Diego and Bali. That is when he was abroad. So Rishi Sunak is actually up the road from where Gary Gibbon works, but won't come on regularly. And what politicians are doing now is picking and choosing what they want to do. For example, yesterday, Sunak did a pool interview with five questions that is not really being held to account on a mass um, television programme. Then he did a, a, a proper interview for GB News, which in the scale of things has very, very small numbers of viewers. And then he did a special access with a grieving mother for ITV News in the Garden of Number 10. This was during his crime week. Now, that is not being held properly to account. And I think it was May who really started this problem when she refused to do the uh, television debates. Corbyn was awful too in terms of being prepared to come on to TV. And if politicians won't come on television and do long interviews with duly impartial, regulated journalists, then I, I think our democracy is not being properly served. Just a, ca a counterpoint to that uh, slightly, Dorothy. Do you think that actually... Um, because we hear a lot about people, people particularly work in TV, love the idea of bringing about the long-form interview. If politicians aren't going to do that, then, I mean, there are ways of reporting on politics, explaining politics, holding politicians to account for what they've said and, are, you know, explaining whether or not that is true or have they delivered on that um, without necessarily speaking to them. I mean, I, I think to some extent, we do this on the show. We don't have many politicians on the show. We do explain how politics is working. We explain how things... Um, uh, have been delivered or haven't, or is that the case or or not? And that actually half an hour of Grant Shapps is probably going to be less enlightening than a detailed look into what's going on in defence, for instance, now he's in that, in that new job. But viewers, and viewers are the public, are the voters, say that they want to hear directly from these people Partly, they are suspicious if all they hear is interpretation. They want to see the person directly for themselves. And if I could quote two very diff different politicians briefly, Tony Blair said, when I first began as a politician, your ambition was to get on the Today programme. Now, politicians don't want to do that. <laughs> Ken Clark said about going on TV and doing very difficult interviews. Part of the job, I always thought. So I think in a democracy, you need to hear directly from the people who are representing you. And it's great that they do different small things and they do podcasts, but in the end, you need mass numbers. Yeah. Now, I've never worked for the BBC and I've criticised it a lot. And Times Radio is brilliant, of course, but I would just point out Times Radio's reach, as I understand it, is 500,000 people a week uh, listening to five minutes or more. Radio 4's is 18 times that. 
So cabinet ministers love doing Tangs Radio, probably because there are great people like you on it, but they need to also do the uh, radio and television programmes with mass audiences. I mean, <clears throat> they don't love coming on this programme, it has to be said. Um, uh, Tatton, uh, I mentioned your book, Politics But Better. What's your sort of prescription then for uh, how we can do politics better? Well, uh, the book has 26 different ideas. It's an A to Z. But I want to come back to what we've just been talking about, about TV interviews, because there is certainly a problem with politicians not putting themselves up. But the bigger problem is how the channels fill that time when they haven't got anything. And they have their breaking news alerts uh, on mobile, it gets pushed out, notification, it plays a sound. Uh, you've got no idea until you pick up your phone whether the Prime Minister's resigned or whether Ken Bruce has left BBC Radio 2. And that is terrifying for people. I get people telling me every day that they have to, they've got rid of all the news apps, they don't watch news TV because it's sensationalist and it's deliberately driven to draw you in. It's become clickbaity because there aren't, isn't, there isn't enough solid stuff for them to talk about. I've had a doctor prescribe simple politics to someone with anxiety because they were so surrounded by all the nonsense that the, especially the rolling news channels put out to draw people in. And they, the, today, uh, when I got the news notification about Grant Shapps' replacement, it said, because no one really, the public don't know who she is, they, they said, click here to find out who it is. Because they're just drawing you in yeah, yeah. deliberately. Although I, I suppose the um, that if, if you, less so for for the public service broadcasters, but for for others like the Times and so on, it's a it's a it's a news service. People pay for it. You have to make money. You have to build an audience. Um, but I do think there's an interesting point there that you've sort of both sort of touched on a, a, a bit as well. The Brexit years basically sent everyone a bit mad, including the news industry. And the temptation to whip a gazebo up on College Green and and treat everything like the government is on the on the precipice again. Um, uh, it, it's probably something we've got a bit, we need to wean ourselves off. Uh, although, the, you know, the government has been a bit precipice uh, quite a lot in the last year or so. <laughs> and that's all we've got time for on the podcast today because I probably need to go and update a live blog with my Twitters and my threads and my TikToks or something. It's always changing this reporting life. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.